All right. Well, good evening. Uh, welcome to Wednesday midweek Calvary Chapel Richmond service. And uh, my brother Tuan couldn't have said it better with uh, a thirsty and weary soul because that's usually how I am on a Wednesday. I, I run out by like about Sunday night <laughs> and then I get here and I get a recharge. And I love it. So welcome. I hope you guys are enjoying the, the nice brisk weather tonight about uh, 25, which is, which is nothing from where you guys come from, I understand. But uh, we are in Virginia, so it's a little, little chilly. So tonight, uh, we will be going over Proverbs chapter 21. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there, because uh, we are going to read it verse by verse. And uh, I do want to say that uh, a couple weeks ago, it's been a few weeks since we have taught out of the book of Proverbs, and uh, a couple weeks ago, my brother Tuan did teach it did an excellent job of, of framing what the entire book of Proverbs really is about. Uh, such a compilation of wisdom uh, for a myriad of different things in our life. Uh, wisdom for every situation and every day, if we take the time to sit and let it and just marinate in Proverbs. And I say that because sometimes, as you read a chapter in Proverbs, it can be pretty erratic. You can read one verse, and verse 2 has nothing to do with verse 1, and it can jump around. And so sometimes that throws people off, and I have been one of those people, so no shame. Uh, but we're going to read it tonight, and, and what we want to do is take our time as we read it, because if you read the book of Proverbs, what you'll see is a common thread or common threads within each chapter. And as those start to illuminate to you, you'll see that those threads that have these common binds um, highlight right and wrong ways of doing things, right and wrong ways of living, and right and wrong ways of thinking. Uh, so it's, it's beautiful no matter what chapter you're in in Proverbs. But we're going to read uh, the entire uh, chapter 21 tonight. And then, uh, and then we're going to pray over it, and then we're going to dive right in. So with that, we're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read all the way through the entire chapter. So read along with me, if you will. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. A haughty look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked are sin. The plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty, but those of everyone who is hasty, surely to poverty. Getting treasures by a lying tongue is the fleeting fantasy of those who seek death. The violence of the wicked will destroy them because they refuse to do justice. The way of a guilty man is perverse, but as for the pure, his work is right. Better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than in a house share with a contentious woman, and I can add in man here as well, because both can be contentious. The soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. When the scoffer is punished, the simple is made wise, but when the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. The righteous God wisely considers the house of the wicked, overthrowing the wicked for their wickedness. 
Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. A gift in secret pacifies anger, and a bribe behind the back strong wrath. It is a joy for the just to do justice, but destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. A man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. He who loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. The wicked shall be a ransom for the righteous and the unfaithful for the upright. Better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman or man. There is a desirable treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man squanders it. He who follows righteousness and mercy finds life, righteousness, and honor. A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the trusted stronghold. Whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from trouble. I could read this about three or four times, but I'll keep going. A proud and haughty man, scoffer is his name. He acts with arrogant pride. The desire of the lazy man kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. He covets greedily all day long, but the righteous gives and does not spare. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with wicked intent? A false witness shall perish, but the man who hears him will speak endlessly. A wicked man hardens his face, but as for the upright, he establishes his way. There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you this evening praying that you would remove all distractions tonight. Anything that has crept up uh, from this week, God, please take that off of our shoulders and our minds. We desire to truly pour into your word, Father, to hear from you and your Holy Spirit. God, we desire to hear from you and, and, and be able to apply it in our lives. So tonight, I pray that you meet with us. Father, remove me and speak through your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. So truly, Solomon was extremely wise. We're told that in Scripture. And, and frankly, if we broke this down, each of the 31 verses could literally be their own teaching. You could literally do a teaching on each individual verse. But uh, we're, we're not going to do that tonight. We're going to look at a few and see how it resonates throughout Scripture and how it applies to us. And, and as I mentioned before, as you read through each proverb, you can find some commonality and uh, a common thread. Well, uh, as I was praying and, and, and reading over this, in fact, when I first got told, you know, Scott, you know, we'd like you to take Proverbs 21, and I read it for the first time, I looked at it, and I thought to myself, what in the world? Because there's not a common theme. Usually when you read scripture, you can find one, and, and you know kind of what it's about. But when I first read this, each verse was jumping all over the page, and, and, and I had to go back and pray. I'm like, all right, Lord, what do you want us to, to know? What do you want to teach us from these 31 verses? And so he showed me, you know, like when you ask the Lord, he's going to show you whether you like it or not. Uh, he showed me three distinct categories that are in this chapter in particular. Uh, and, and that's going to be turning, testing, and instruction. Turning, testing, and instruction. And uh, I'll be honest, as I, as I sat and prayed over this, uh, and these three things became obvious to me, uh, 
I wasn't ready to be faced with three things I wasn't comfortable with or three things I didn't like. Uh, and it's funny because when you, when you ask the Lord to reveal his scripture to you and, okay, Lord, what do you want to teach me in this? We have to be ready for what he's going to show us, whether we like it or not. And so, you know, as I looked at the, the turning and the testing and the instruction, it became obvious I don't do these very well. Therefore, you know, you, you usually kind of go towards what you are comfortable with and what you do well to teach on, and I don't do any of these very well. Uh, I, I can do some of them okay-ish, certainly not all three. But I have to believe that's not just me. So we're going to kind of go, go through this a little bit in these sections. And, and honestly, if we kind of look at the three different topics, we, we have to be honest with ourselves that none of us really do them great. Um, you know, ask my wife, and frankly, I'm going to say that a couple times tonight, and, and most of us men can because when we say ask our wife, They've seen a lot of things, and they've seen a lot of things that we're good at, and they've seen a lot of things that we're not so good at. And so for the, the, when we're talking about turning, you know, you can ask my wife, she'll attest to the fact that I'm, I'm kind of stubborn, uh, and, and, and I have like a nice layer of stubborn across the board. It's not just in one or two areas. It's like across the board, but I have certain areas that dig down deep, right? There's certain areas of stubborn that have some severe roots, um, and and. It's one of those things, once I get my mind up in an area or, or a mind up to do something, I just, I continue to want to do it. I, I have a hard time turning from my action or turning from that way of thinking. Uh, regarding tests, you know, I'm looking at this and, and I, I'm okay with tests. I don't like them, but I can do them. Um, especially if they're related to my work, right? I'm okay with that. I can do them. If they're just for no reason, I don't want to do them. I don't really like them. Some people hate them, and it's understandable. And, and then we have instruction. That's the, this is the third section we'll be talking about tonight. And the reason I actually labeled it instruction is purposeful. I didn't label it training. Because when someone mentions training, the first thing we all think of is training for work or training for a sport. And both of those we are absolutely okay with. If it's training for work, uh, it's because we want it or we're getting paid to do it which either way, it's okay with us and we don't kind of push it away. If it's training for sports related or something along that nature, it's also something we enjoy doing or want to do. Therefore, we're okay with training. Instruction is different. Instruction is being told how to best approach something, how best to view something or accomplish something, even if it's not necessarily how we would do it. So, it being instructed to do something sometimes goes against how we like to naturally do something. And that's where we have the, 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 the ugly cousin you never want to come over to your house called pride or stubbornness. They kind of come in, they sit on the couch and make themselves at home. Because when you want to do something a certain way and you are instructed to do it differently, you have a, we have a hard time sometimes changing the way we want to do something. So... Those are the three things, and before we actually uh, dig into them, I always want to go over definitions. Definitions are a good way for us to baseline what the knowledge is, uh, because if I say a word, you may very well have a different idea in your head of what it means. So I want a baseline, we're level set, everybody what these de common definitions are. So before we go into them, turning. Turning is a very simple definition. To cause to move until a desired end is achieved. Right? Seems simple enough. To cause or move until a desired end is achieved. Testing, 
and this is by Webster's Dictionary, is measuring of capacity or aptitude, procedure to identify or characterize. And then instruction is statement that describes how to do something, an order or a command or the action of teaching. So now that I've given a, a few little definitions and the actual, a, a few little examples, I think we are starting to think about how these three in our own lives and how we react to them and how we handle them. So our first section tonight is turning. Um, and it actually uh, starts uh, early in, uh, in the chapter. It actually brackets the, the, the whole chapter itself. But, you know, for example, as I mentioned with my wife, it's not easy to turn me. Uh, now, if we think about it, like for me, sometimes I don't turn because I didn't hear. Uh, I was distracted. Uh, we always have those things. But sometimes I'm, I'm in the middle of doing something and you know, closing a door, closing a back door, closing a front door, closing the fridge door. I'm in the action of doing it and I can see out of the corner of my eye that Julie's coming to go out the back and I, I still continue through the motion. Like I still continue because I have to close it. It's part of the motion. I can't stop doing it. I don't know why. It's a little weird, but that's how I do it. And, and frankly, it, it, you know, when you do that at the wrong time, it, it's not really cool. So it's hard for me to stop mid-stride when, when I'm doing something. And, and, and sometimes we use that terminology at work, turning the Titanic. Some of these things are going to be so hard to turn, it's impossible. Well, we're like that as well. For me, when I start a task, I, I like to finish it, and it's hard for me to do something different. Turning mid-stride for me isn't easy. But this subject brackets this proverb. Um, the first and the last verse specifically speak to how the Lord turns, and that's what we're going to be talking about. And, and, and it doesn't matter the preparation, the lack of preparation. It doesn't matter about chance or even what your heart really wants to do because the final decision is up to God, and the final decision will be the Lord's. So this subject, and you, we have heard this before in the Old Testament, Paul has mentioned it in the New Testament, but it, you've heard the term kicking against the goats. That's, that's literally what this is, and I had to look up what that term means, because I, I, frankly we don't use that in our vernacular nowadays. So this actually relates to something called the ox goat. Also, not something we use nowadays, and I didn't know what this was. It's actually a pole with a metal sharpened tip at the end, and it's to prevent and cause pain or discomfort of the animal when it turns in a way you don't want it to turn. So honestly, the term kicking against the goads means to you're doing something that is going to hurt you or make you dis like uncomfortable because you're not supposed to go that way. And that's really, and it ties in with turning when the Lord is turning us or our situation one way and we're striving to go a different way, it's going to be uncomfortable. And sometimes it'll cause pain. So Proverbs 21 emphasizes this in Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. Now, Solomon actually says this because you got to look at the context. Uh, the king was someone who ruled. That person's decision uh, was law, and what they said would take place. Well, 
he uses it here because he wants to emphasize that no matter the person, no matter the position, no matter the power or stature, God is in control and can change anyone's heart supernaturally. Uh, and it's, it's, that's not a possibly, that's a statement and it's a fact. If we look back at ourselves, when he took us from darkness to light, that was a supernatural turning of each one of us. I did not want to, nor did I try and find it. God did it. That was a turning. And he did that to each one of us. And because of that, we are constantly in a battle with our flesh. God's desire is to turn us from our flesh and the temptations which the enemy always puts in front of us to turn us away. So we read this verse, and in this context, it's really designed to show that if God can do something with someone as noble as a king, he can do it to anybody. You know, when we look around, and there are situations and people that that discourage us. Uh, Maybe we've been praying for someone for years, and we're discouraged because what we want to see happen hasn't happened. We can be unsettled, distressed, when we see that stubbornness of man's heart. And what I want to encourage us, and the Lord wants to encourage us in this, is the stubbornness of a man's heart is not stronger than God's will to turn a heart and to turn someone. We have biblical examples that are, that are endless. But looking at, at, at a turning of a heart, some of the most notable ones I want to remind us of tonight if you look at Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart was turned to Joseph. If you look at the, the position Joseph was elevated to, he was not Egyptian. He was an Israelite. He was Jewish, right? So Pharaoh's heart was turned to Joseph. Saul's heart was turned to David. Nebuchadnezzar's heart turned to Jeremiah. Darius's heart turned to Daniel. Now, I don't want to say these, you know, pay lip service saying it was an easy road, But the heart was eventually turned when all of these, with the exception of Saul, did not follow after God. You have Darius' heart turned to Daniel. Then you have Cyrus and Alexander the Great's heart that was actually turned in favor into the greatness of the Jews. Can't explain it. There's no explanation for it. It's not as if that they were paid off or things were done in their favor. God's heart turned, God turned their hearts uh, to the Jews. But when we look at ourselves and we look at uh, ourselves prior to surrendering our hearts to the Lord, um, God turned our heart by his grace and his mercy and his sheer love for us and the continuing to run after us, um, the continuing to see his love and our hearts turned to where he wanted them. So that's the first verse. The very end of the chapter, Proverbs 21, 31, says the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. Now this is a different type of turning, right? So we just talked about the turning of a heart. So we have turning of a, the heart and the mind. This is a different type of turning. We have to remember also, when we read these, we got to take them in context. So for us, this doesn't make a lot of sense because we're like, okay, horse in battle makes no sense. 
But at this point in time, let's go back and remember, everybody was a foot soldier. If you had horses, you actually had the upper hand. So in this context, any army that had horses um, had an exponential multiplier, right? They were an armored cavalry. That's what the original thing was. If you had horses, your other um, armies or, or people you were going to battle against were outmatched if they didn't have any. And, and that's what this context is. It's talking about, okay, you, you have an army, you have horses, and you have everything prepared for battle, but the deliverance is of the Lord, not what you've done and not what has been prepared, Right? It's reminding us to not put our faith in the preparation, to not put our faith in the object or the thing, uh, in this case being a horse, but to put it in God, because it's God who will do the delivering. We are all too quick to put uh, our faith in, in, in something, in anything, anything other than God, right? Our, our, our faith in, in our job or the car or the family or the relationship, anything but the Lord. But all the glory belongs to the Lord, no matter what. And we also have a lot of examples of this. First Samuel, David against Goliath. Everyone gets taught this in children's ministry when you're growing up, but you don't really understand the magnitude until you're an adult and can understand what was going on and the sheer magnitude of Goliath versus David, who had just come in from watching the flock. Joshua 6, Joshua against Jericho marching around seven times, blowing trumpets and yelling, that's not the first thing in my book I would do to bring down like really thick walls. But you know what? Doesn't matter. Because when God is in charge, he brings deliverance. Judges chapter 7, Gideon against the Midianites. This is the same thing. Gideon had an army and then he got whittled down. He got whittled down to so small, there was no other explanation but to give God the glory for the battle and the victory. Having said that, I also want to bring attention to the fact that not all battles of the Israelites were victorious. Not all battles of God's people ended in victory. It's only when they obeyed the word of the Lord that there was victory. The example here is 1 Samuel. The Israelites went out to beat the Philistines and they thought, you know what, we're going to bring the ark the ark is going with us because that's going to give us the victory. Well, God allowed them to be defeated and the Philistines took hold of the ark because it's not the ark that was going to deliver them. It was, it was God. And they forgot that. It's only when they, and, and we see this in scripture and we see this in our own life. It's only when we obey the Lord and we don't kick against the goads when we will have victory. But today in our own lives, when we face battles, it's not on a field, it's not with swords or shields or spears, it's in hearts and minds. And seeking the Lord and being obedient is the first start, which will bring victory. This echoes throughout all of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That is a turning. That is a, my past is gone. When I accepted Christ as Savior, I am brand new, washed. That is a turning 
incompleteness. God is the God of turned hearts. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Man, aren't there people we know that have hearts of stone? I mean, there are people all of us have. Family members or neighbors or friends or coworkers, and they have a heart of stone. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, God can take a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. And it's beautiful. And we see all throughout Scripture how God has changed hearts. Whether evil, stagnant, or prodigal, he can turn hearts. And I have to throw up a, a, a quote from Spurgeon, whom I absolutely love. It says, Do not be ashamed of confessing your past folly. I think a man who says I was wrong really, in effect, says I'm a little wiser today than I was yesterday. So when God desires to turn you, admit it and realize his desire is to make you wiser than where you are. So that's really the first section that we want to talk about in, uh, in, in turning. The next one, the next one's everybody's favorite, right? Testing. Everybody loves testing. Everybody loves to be tested. And I say that in jest because, uh, honestly, and, and I'll, I'll forward my next slide. I don't want to forward just yet. So honestly, we're okay with testing. The, testing in the real world happens, right? And we're okay with it. We are okay because that happens in our normal everyday life. And, you know, yes, it happens in schooling, but for us in the professional world, it happens, and we're okay with it. We're okay with our annual reviews. We're okay with our quarterly checks, annual appraisals, special projects to see how you're doing in your job or your profession. We, we want testing. We want testing in the aviation community. We want certification checks. We want flight drills, flight checks. We want their certifications updated. And, and frankly, I, I have a lot of Army-like examples, so I have to throw, nope, that is backwards. Let's go forwards. All right, that is my Bradley. There are many like it, but that one is literally mine. At Fort Carson, when uh, third ACR was at Fort Carson, I spent a lot of nights in there, and I did a lot of gunnery on that Bradley. And the reason why this is an example is because Another real-world example of testing we're okay with. To be Bradley certified and to earn your spurs, you have to take apart the main gun, which is an M242 Bushmaster chain 25-millimeter gun, 25-millimeter cannon. You have to take that apart to include the feed chambers and put it all back together, and I still have scars on my hand to prove that I passed. But I was okay with that because it was part of my job. And that's the end of that picture. Just wanted to throw that up there for... For fun. Okay. But the problem is, when we're okay with it in our job, or we're okay with it in, in, in some other aspect, yet when the Lord wants to test us, we, we do the timeout. We're like, oh, hold, hold on, hold on. That's no fair. I don't like this. Why are you doing this? We're okay with it over here, but not over here. And it shouldn't be so. And, and we're going to get into why. But biblically, we see a lot of testing going on. And one of, uh, one of the examples that you will always hear repeated because it, it, it's, it has multiple layers of why it's used. And I always look back to the Israelites wandering in the desert for 40 years. I bring that up because of what contributed to their wandering for 40 years. They had, and I ponder this at night with my family a lot. Sometimes we'll just randomly be talking about things. We could be singing Christmas carols. And then all of a sudden I'll be like, you had a, a, a cloud by day, 
and a pillar of fire by night. Like, how, how do you not follow that? But there are things that I haven't followed, so I don't, I don't discount I wouldn't have been in the same spot. But they had provision, right? They were given manna. Their sandals didn't wear out. Um, and, and yet what happened was their hearts were tested while they were there. And what was found was they would grumble, they would complain, they, would, they molded a golden calf and worshipped it. They did everything but look to the Lord and be patient. They actually even desired to have meat and go back to Egypt under bondage so they could have what they used to have. I, I think of the love that Peter had for our Savior. And then I look at his denial at, towards the end that Jesus had told him was going to happen before the rooster crowed three times, right? Before the rooster crowed. But then you see, on the other hand, after Peter was tested, the, the, the restoration Jesus does. So we're going to get into the testing that the Lord does is different than the testing that the world does. Proverbs 21, verse 2. And, and trust me, we're not going through every verse here. We're not doing an expository in every verse. So, so just bear with me. 21, verse 2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. You know, by nature... We justify ourselves. Doesn't matter what's it, what it's in. I can justify every little thing I've done in a car because it makes sense to me. I can justify this because, you know what? It, it felt like the right thing to do at the time. Whether the intentions were good or the, or the outcome justified the means, regardless, there are times where stubborn pride will always make us think that we're right. Uh, my mind can literally make me think I'm right when I actually know that I'm wrong. How's that? So, and my brother Tuan, when he taught, did a great job touching on this subject. The great equalizer to this problem is that the Lord sees the heart. Sees and he weighs the heart. He knows our mo motives no matter, no matter what we say to ourselves or how we convince our friends. That's why a lot of us got in trouble when we were growing up because our friends were like, yeah, that's a great idea. Do that right? No matter how or who we can justify it, we'll never justify it to God if he doesn't want it and it's not right. Proverbs 21.3 also falls into this. It says, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. This is a test of what is more important to you. Righteousness and justice, this is really our, our horizontal relationship to one another. And it's, believe it or not, how you relate horizontally to one another, how you relate to your brother and your sister is very important to God. The latter part of this verse speaks to the sacrifices that were made um, to write the relationship with God, to cover sin. You had a, a, a religious ceremony or you had the actual action of being righteous and showing justice. This is saying that God sees how we act and treat others as more important than religious ceremonies like sacrificing. And he tests that. James 1 verses 3 and 4 says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. 
Testing actually produces patience and other godly characteristics and attributes in us. We may not like what the testing is. We may not like the environment or the situation. And, and I will never stand up here saying that the testing God gives each one of us is easy. I will never say that. The testing I have walked through has never been easy. The testing my brothers and sisters are walking through or have walked through is never easy. But there is always a plan and a purpose and a work. And James brings that up here. Um, God's job and design in testing us is to produce in us to be more like Christ and to be more molded into his image. Because guess what, folks? This is not our home. Like, we're not even home yet. He's molding us for our home. We are to be visitors. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 says, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. This is a great motivator for what and why are you really saying what you're saying or who you're talking to. Why are you doing that? Psalm 26.2 says, Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. Rhetorical question. How many of us have actually said this to the Lord? Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. I, I've never said that because I know the answer. <laughs> so, I already know the answer, so I already know I have things to work on. But that's, that's a legitimate thing to pray to the Lord because he will test and he will show you because he desires to change whatever needs changing. Brothers and sisters, testing is a way of the Christian walk and the Christian life. It is. But what I wanted to get at was there's a distinct difference. You have the world's testing, and their whole job, whether it's your job, sports, whatever the case is, is to rank, to rank you, how good you are, how bad you are. That's not God's design for testing. The world wants to tear you down. God's design is to tear you, or is to build you up and make you better than what you currently are. Make me better than what I currently am. Any testing he allows into my life is to take me further on my Christian walk. And that is always the case. Spurgeon says, severe trouble in a true believer has the effect of loosening the roots of his soul earthward and tightening the anchor hold of his heart heavenward. The more I get tested, the more I can't wait to go home. I don't know how you guys feel. The more I get tested, the more I realize I, 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 I can't wait to actually be done. But the Lord strengthens you until he calls you. The last thing, the last, it's not up there. I'm going to read this. It's anonymous. But uh, it, it, I had to write this down. It's a quote about this. The most deeply taught Christians are generally those who have been brought into the searching fires of deep soul anguish. If you have been praying to know more of Christ, do not be surprised if he takes you aside into a desert place or leads you into a furnace of pain. That is not my words. <laughs> I just want to point that out. 
But there is truth to that. And, and it's, you know, we have the description of, of, of silver and, and making the fire hot enough to get all the dross off. And if you've never seen that, it's actually pretty cool. When you get melted silver and you see that, it's just black junk that comes up. And even when you do it once, there's still more that comes up. And that's God's design when he tests us. But there's scripture throughout this proverb, throughout the Bible that talks about it. But our next section is instruction. Now, I have a habit of always having an answer and knowing an answer for everything. It may not be the right answer, but I've got an answer. But so instruction sometimes is hard, right? I can, uh, and, and I'm saying me a lot because I'm not going to point fingers and I can point fingers best of myself. I have a habit of uh, being difficult to teach in situations where like I'm, I'm sure I know the best way. I'm sure this is the best. So God's design is, is, is not to save us and then leave us without any instruction, without any wisdom. That's not his design. That'd be like giving a 10-year-old a brand new car and telling him, good luck. Have fun, right? That's not the case. Here's, here's an example. I really want to be taught how to disassemble and assemble an engine. Uh, you guys know I'm a car guy. I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated. I have watched countless YouTube videos. I have contacted my shop and told them the next time they, they, they bring an engine in to build it, I want to show up. I'll take vacation. I will watch you do it. I will watch the steps. I have looked on thousands of car form threads to learn because I'm fascinated and I, I, I really want to know. Um, I want to be instructed. It's an area I really find fascinating and I might do a midlife career change. I don't know. However, I bring that up because am I seeking that same, do I have the same fervor uh, to gain wisdom about uh, instruction in my life, to gain wisdom in my life? Am I Am I seeking out God's word to learn more and how better to approach, how better to uh, think and respond to people? Am I looking for teachings that edify and, and that, that help me understand scripture? Um, and, and, you know, we all have that area, you know, where you've, well, are, how much time are you doing in, in each area? And that's, that's not the case here, and I'm not trying to bring that up, but the rest of Proverbs 21 is all about wisdom. It is all about how to live our life. It is all about how to think, how to act, and actions to take in certain situations. And, and not just Proverbs 21. All of Scripture does this. All of Scripture is designed for wisdom. God desires to show us. And I'm going to run through a few verses, specifically here in Proverbs 21. Verse 6 says, talks about getting treasures by a lying tongue is the fleeting fancy of those who seek death. The dream of those chasing wealth through a lying tongue are literally on a path to destruction. That's what this is saying. It's wisdom and instruction for us to not go down that path. It's a stark warning against lying for gain in any circumstance. Verse 13 says, Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. This is wisdom to remind us that 
we have to take into consideration others. Yes, this specifically speaks to the cry of the poor, but this is to consider others and, and, and not just think, I have mine, therefore I'm good. This is an others-focused verse for wisdom. It speaks to, we will reap what we sow. Verse 21, he who follows righteousness and mercy finds life, righteousness, and honor. This is, it doesn't get any more blatant than this. It's a path of wisdom for those who will listen and surrender to him. Verse 23, I love. Verse 23, I I, want to read multiple times. And it's something we could, we could all kind of put on a piece of paper and tape on our door or in our car before we leave the house or get out of the car. Whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from trouble. I mean, <laughs> unguarded words l- legitimately cause trouble. They can bring a lot of trouble. Um, guarding one's mouth is just plain smart. James 3.8 says, But no man can tame the tongue. It is unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Right? So it's not taming the tongue. It's guarding your mouth. And it's the Lord that can do this for us. Verse 30 says, There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. Fighting or trying to reason against the Lord is a losing battle. It just is. Throughout Scripture, we have His Word showing us, telling us, comforting us that He desires to tell us, that He desires to instruct us, that we don't have to rely upon ourselves. We don't have to rely upon our intellect. We don't have to rely upon a degree or 30 years experience. We don't have to rely upon that. He and His Word will teach us. Uh, a few other verses I want to read before we come to a close. Psalm 32.8 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. John 14.26, this is one of those promises that we can always cling to. John 14.26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. This is one of those promises where we know if you really are struggling and you don't know, to pray and ask the Lord for the Holy Spirit to teach you and for the Holy Spirit to direct and, and, and give you guidance. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All of it. There are times where I've read scripture, and I'll be honest, I don't know where to go with it. I don't know what the application is in my life. But just because I don't know doesn't mean it isn't applicable in my life. I need to ask for wisdom in in how to read it and how to understand it. And the, the last quote I have tonight is, again, from Spurgeon. It says, many people think they know everything, and consequently, they know nothing. I think it is Seneca who says, many a man would have been wise if he had not thought himself so. If he had but known himself to be a fool, he would have become wise. I think this starts with a place, instruction begins with realizing that we are not as smart as we think we are. 
and we need wisdom and we need to be instructed and that's what God's design is. So tonight in Proverbs 21, really there were th- there's three common veins, that in, three common things that all of the scriptures fall into in Proverbs 21. It, it's about turning and how God can turn both hearts and minds, but also situations, and he is ultimately in control. It's about testing, that testing takes place. And, and God tests and weighs the heart, and he weighs the mind. And then instruction, which is a, such an encouragement and a promise that every single word, every single story, every single piece of history in the Bible is for our instruction, is for our wisdom. And it's for us to put into place in our walk. You know, I can, I can put Lego pieces on a table and you see the picture of what it's going to look like when it's done. But I can't make a child put it together. They have to start to put the pieces together. We have it sitting in front of us. It's our job to pick it up and put it into practice. Um, so what I'm going to do tonight, uh, that concludes tonight's teaching. I'm going to close in prayer. And for everyone watching online, we'll close in prayer. Um, uh, but for the, those that are here in the body, I'm going to ask you to remain seated. We want to, we want to pray about a few things before we cut loose, if that's okay with you guys. Um, so for those of you who are online, after we pray, pray that you have a great night. Stay warm. Let's pray. Father, you are so gracious to give us your word. You have such good gifts to give us, and we thank you. We are not deserving of any of it, yet you're mindful of us. And, and Father, I still can't wrap my mind around why, but thank you for your love. Thank you for everything you've done. Thank you for your son who went to the cross to redeem us. Pray tonight that as we leave here, Father, you would show us in your word the instruction on how to apply in our life. Where do you want to test us? Where do you want to turn us? And Father, when we feel you and we hear from your Holy Spirit that you want to turn us, let us not kick against the goes. Let us turn. Let us turn and, and realize that you're doing it for a plan and you're doing it for a purpose and you're doing it to better us. Father, we love you. Thank you for this time. Pray you were honored and glorified and may we glorify you as we leave here. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.